Welcome to the Faithful Music Master, Musings of a Forever Musician Learner. This is Opening Up the Bible, Episode 1, Advent 1b. Hi, I'm Ellis Montes, and today we're going to go ahead and open up our Bible. So, This is a series that I'd mentioned in my previous episode, saying that I wanted to do a series that talks about the lectionary. Um, And so basically, this is what it is. This is not a sermon. This is not um, full-fledged theological writings. This is not even something that I would necessarily consider to be super qualified necessarily. Um, The only thing that I have for myself is that I am a lifelong Christian. I have read through the Bible many times. I have studied classical Greek and other literature and tropes in university, but I do not have a degree in theology. Mine is in English or in music, whichever path you want to choose for my expertise. Um, So I just have lots of opinions, if you haven't noticed already. And so I just wanted to give some ideas about what I think about the different readings. So basically what I'm hoping to do is to just go through each one for um, the following Sunday and then just give a little bit of my impression of it. I love the Bible. It is oftentimes a comfortable text for me because it's something that I've been very familiar with for a long time. But usually it's also a comforting text as well. Although there are some times when I do have some um, difficulties with it, as do many people. And I think that it's important to be able to address those issues whenever they come up as well. And as always, I am here drinking a tea. This time it is the Ahmad tea um, brand, and it's a cardamom tea. So it's uh, very spicy and just perfect for, um, for a podcast episode. All right, so the first reading that we have today is from Isaiah, and it is Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 through 9. I'm going to go ahead and read the version, and this is from the lectionarypage.net, which uses the New Revised Standard Version for their texts. So here it is. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, so that the mountains would quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, so that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who works for those who wait for him. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you in your ways. But you are angry, and we sinned, because you hid yourself, we transgressed. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls on your name, or attempts to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, and have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter, we are all the work of your hand. Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider, we are all your people. So there is a lot of imagery there, and I think it's um, kind of interesting to kind of take in at once. And um, this kind of plays off of a theme that I'm seeing a lot of um, throughout the readings. And it's the idea that the face of God shines so brightly at all times that whenever we're um, facing away from it, that's kind of when we find darkness as well. I want to kind of talk a little bit more about that um, a little bit later on. But right now I wanted to focus on one of the images in this um, text, which is um, verse 8. I'll repeat it again. This is where it says, We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. 
So um, this one kind of relates also to another passage in Jeremiah. And the reason why I know this is because I actually wrote a reflection on this. It's coming out in March. Um, so kind of look forward to that. If you read the forward day by day um, uh, little booklets from um, from the forward movement um, publishing, you'll see them and you'll see my reflections in there for March of 2021. Anyways, so... What it reminded me of, though, was this imagery also in Jeremiah, which also talks about a potter who is reworking clay. And I'm not too sure if that's what Isaiah was alluding to, but to me, there's always that idea that a potter or anybody who works with clay really can kind of change things up as you go along. And the thing is that in order to turn clay into a dish or a pot or a cup or a plate it can be so many different things i mean like it can even be a flower pot for all we know um you know there's possibly some evidence in the bible at least in my readings of some of the psalms that um there are even allusions to potted plants um you know if we also talk about um some of the other gardening techniques and such um, and those are kind of fun for me because I take care of lots of potted plants outside. But anyways, not to get too far off. So basically, a potter can turn a piece of clay into anything, basically. And for me, my takeaway is saying that it ain't over until it's over. So again, no matter where we find ourselves or where... Um, you know, however the situation might be around us, there can always be a transition, we can always be changed, and we can always kind of ask God to transform us and to change us. And also, on top of that, the actual finishing process, so after we've kind of formed into whatever we're supposed to be, after the, the potter has turned the clay into the right shape, there's still a long process, and it depends on what kind of pottery it's going to be or what kind of ceramic it's going to be like if it's going to be um stoneware or that's the only word that i know because i forgot a bunch of these terms um i just heard them from a podcast series before but basically um the process of firing the clay in order to become something that's usable it's a very long and complicated process that oftentimes involves you fire it once, then you let it dry or settle, then you fire it again. Maybe you'll glaze it, maybe you'll paint it, maybe you'll put it in the fire again. So it kind of goes back and forth um, between the fire and doing some other treatments as well. And that's, to me, all to say that there is always this constant process of really being transformed and to be finalized and to be polished into something that will be ultimately usable or beneficial or all of the above. So that's kind of my takeaway from this Isaiah passage. So the next passage is from Psalm 80, chapters 1 through 7 and 16 through 18. Now I will admit I haven't read the entire psalm on its own and I can't really remember it off the top of my head. Um, but I'll just go ahead and read the passage that we have here for this Sunday, and then afterwards I'll give just um, some interesting, well, just whatever I find interesting. I don't know if it'll be interesting to anybody else. But anyways, here it is. Hear, O shepherd of Israel, leading Joseph like a flock, shine forth, you that are enthroned upon the cherubim. In the presence of Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, Stir up your strength and come to help us. Restore us, O God of hosts. Show the light of your countenance and we shall be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angered despite the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have given them bowls of tears to drink. You have made us the derision of our neighbors and our enemies laugh us to scorn. Restore us, O God of hosts, show the light of your countenance, and we shall be saved. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, the son of man you have made so strong for yourself. And so will we never turn away from you. Give us life, that we may call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts, show the light of your countenance, and we shall be saved. 
So this psalm has, I want to, I hope it's kind of clear that the biggest thing I want to focus on is this idea of the countenance of God and the fact that we have this shining light that comes before us. Throughout the Bible, you know, the texts of the Hebrew Bible and of the Greek Bible, there's a lot of different imagery that re that basically reflects this idea about light in general, and that light is the the guide towards salvation or towards heaven or towards God or towards goodness. There's lots of different ways to interpret that. And I just find that it's really interesting that this psalm keeps on bringing up this idea, show us the light of your countenance and we shall be saved. It doesn't say that if we see God, we will all of a sudden be distressed. It doesn't say that if we see God, that we will be put down or that if we see God or if we seek after God, all that will happen to us is that we will be continuously destroyed until we have absolutely no uh, faculty or any control over our own lives or any of that sort. For me, what I read from this psalm, and again, what I get from this entire reading, um, this set of readings, is that when we find God, we will find light. When we kind of point ourselves towards God, we will find this sort of, um, this pathway towards the light. We will find a guide in the darkness. We will find a direction to follow. And I think that's a really important thing for us to remember, that basically when we follow this way, it doesn't mean that we will all of a sudden be like downtrodden and stuff like that, that to follow this way, it will only be for suffering and that the only thing that life has for us is just damnation and suffering and sadness and um, depression and things like that. I don't like to think about that um, because then, for me at least, it would sound like following this direction it would just be a really um, depressing and a very unfortunate pathway to follow. Um, and that's not what I find from the Bible either, from the teachings of Jesus, who says that we will, um, you know, by living our lives according to the commands, that we can actually make a better world around us and also a better world for ourselves as well. I think those are really important things that we have to hold on to, especially when we approach this time. Um, when we're thinking about Advent as a whole, we're thinking about heading towards Jesus. We're heading towards the birth. We're heading towards salvation. We're heading towards the light. So if we think about this direction as we're reading, as we're meditating, as we're praying, as we attend services, as we do all the different things that we find that are part of our spiritual practice and our spiritual lives in general, we should find that we are in fact following a path of light following a path that will continue to guide us and will continue to illuminate us in all facets of our life. That's just, again, the way that I like to think about it. Again, that by seeing God, that by seeing love, by seeing goodness, by seeing all of this, we will find light and we will be saved. All right, so the next reading on the list is the epistle reading, which is from Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, or 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given to you in Christ Jesus. For in every way you have been enriched in him, in speech and knowledge of every kind. Just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end, so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By him you are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. All right. So um, just kind of first off, I do have opinions about things in general. One of the things that I don't really like because it feels really awkward is the fact that we have this sort of greeting at the beginning of a letter that all of a sudden is kind of being put in a position in our church, or at least in this lectionary, to kind of teach everybody something. 
and maybe not that many people have the same opinion as I do on this, but to me it's like if you got a letter from my grandmother and then you read out loud the first two lines of it where she says, you know, hi, happy Thanksgiving, it's nice to see you, I'm praying for you. I would feel kind of awkward for somebody to kind of read that sort of thing out loud to a really large crowd of people. Now, this isn't to say that I think there are lots of things to learn from these letters. Um, there's lots of good things. In my opinion, there's lots of bad things as well. Um, but there's, you know, there's a lot there to learn from and there's a lot of stuff to um, kind of unpack and to learn from and stuff like that. But the greetings at the beginnings and at the same time, sort of the the um, the farewells at the ends of a lot of them as well, they just feel a little bit too personal to really be shared out like that. But again, I do not know, you know, if there's much um, opinion about that or, or kind of whatever it is. But that's just my impression whenever I see um, those sorts of, um, you know, chapter one, verse one from one of those letters or something like that. Um, it's just a little bit... Um, uh, uncomfortable for me just because it feels like we're exposing this sort of conversation that was meant to be probably more in private um, in its first sending or first writing. But anyway, so this is, an, it, it's a really interesting passage to have nonetheless. Um, again, if we take the broader approach, because I personally feel that this greeting is very specific to the people in Corinth, this idea that they have been uh, following God, they've been following Jesus, they've been um, kind of doing all of the things that they were taught and that they've seen in Revelations and things that they have also learned in their speech. You know, all of these different things. I feel like it's very personal to the church in Corinth. But if we take this to mean that Paul is writing to each and every one of us, no matter where we are, then it's very encouraging. And perhaps that's kind of what the people thought when they put this into the lectionary, this idea that we're going to, you know, kind of make sure that we remember that, um, I guess, Paul is writing to all of us nowadays even. And so, for me, I guess it is a bit of an encouragement, at least to say that um, as we follow Jesus, as we follow um, Jesus' teachings about how to kind of interact with other people and how to, you know, live our own lives and stuff like that, to live our lives as a prayer, as a good deed, as a, um, just as a profession of our faith, that we can continue to um, see and experience Jesus even more and more in our lives. And as a um, product of that as well, we can also experience love in our lives. We can experience this love for our community as well. Uh, one of the interesting things I thought, and this is kind of um, one of the weird departures, I guess, in this podcast series, um, I did want to take um, a closer look at some of these um, passages from maybe a linguistic standpoint. I always find um, when I see a kind of a little surface of it in the English, I'm always curious to see what it says in the Greek. Um, this time was uh, really particular just because um, I was assuming that it was going to be this, and then I read the Greek, and it actually was. So we have this, um, let me see if I can pull up this verse again. So it says, right here, something, for in every way you have been enriched in him in speech and knowledge of every kind. So the word speech and knowledge, I was just like, speech in Greek oftentimes is lego or logos. And knowledge can oftentimes be like gnosis or something like that. And lo and behold, I looked at the Greek and it said that um, just in a slightly different form. But basically we have this idea of the logos and the gnosis. Now my knowledge of early church history isn't the strongest. Um, so I don't know if Paul would have necessarily been alluding to this or maybe somebody who was editing this letter later on kind of added this um, point in there as well. But at the time... And we can kind of see this in things like the Gospel of John, for example. Um, Jesus is often described as the Logos, as the Word, or um, when I was in Greek class, we would always have to translate that word in many different ways, um, because it can mean different things depending on the writer, depending on the philosopher, depending on the time period. But basically, that, that word oftentimes has the word like speech, to speak, a word, or reason even. And so for me, that's the Logos. And then the other part, Gnosis, um, which means like knowledge. But 
just a little bit, maybe around that same time period of when this letter was written, there was also this period, there, there was also, you know, kind of the secret cults that were kind of developing as well of this idea of having like these secret revelations as well from God. And those are the people that are often called Gnostic Christians as well. So these are people who believe that they have the secret knowledge that you have to, you have to be in a secret cult with them in order to understand what that secret is. And so as a result, there's kind of, um, there's a lot of secretiveness around it and it's um, or secrecy I guess that's the right word around it and it's not easy to kind of pick up on on everything that they were teaching and that they were kind of following but basically for me when I see this thing that says that you have been enriched in speech and knowledge of everything I almost want to rewrite it um, to say something more like um, you have been enriched in reasoning and in revelation not just because they both start with R's, but I think that's also very convenient in the in the sentence. But anyway, so basically, this is to say that um, we have, you know, in, in our life of faith, there are parts of it that can be done through reasoning, you know, things that we can kind of experience through our readings, through our teachings, through learning from going to church, going to workshops, um, watching videos, reading books, you know, there's, we've got 2,000 years worth of material um, to kind of su supplement this whole um, knowledge base, basically, or this sort of reason base, I guess, in this, in this sense. Um, so we have been, you know, we have been exposed and we have learned a lot more about God, about the divine through reasoning and through teaching and stuff like that. But at the same time, we've also been learning about this through, um, you know, a deeper knowledge and even revelations, if you will. So basically, in the miracles that have happened or in all of the wonderful moments in our lives, those stories that we hear from the people that we hold close to us, those stories that we hear from the saints, those stories that we hear from history. So basically, this whole idea that in speech and knowledge, we have been, we have basically experienced God in all of these different ways. And for me, even better, it's that we haven't been exclusive to one or the other as well. And I think on top of that, that's also kind of a teaching moment as well, saying that um, our life of faith doesn't always have to rely on one or the other, at least in this um, pairing. Another thing I found interesting was the fact that logos is a masculine word in Greek, gnosis is a feminine word in Greek, and I mean the grammatical genders. I don't mean that literally there was a man named um, logos and a woman named gnosis. Maybe there were, but you know, right now that's not that's not the way that we understand it. But I do think it's interesting to kind of have both of those together, and um, you know, Paul is always obsessed with. Um, gender roles and stuff like that so it's basically saying that we have not only we have experienced god also through both the masculine and the feminine um i don't know if that will add to anything but i found that to be interesting in general aside from this little you know tidbit and stuff like that i just found this uh, message to be encouraging though at the very least saying that when we are, again, living our life of faith, when we are trying to follow, when we are trying to teach others the way of love, that we are, um, you know, we experience Jesus, we experience God, we experience love throughout this whole process, and that the more that we do it, the more we will experience it as well. So this last uh, reading that we have is actually the gospel reading. Jesus said, In those days after that suffering, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. At the very gates, truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, when he leaves home and puts his slaves in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. Therefore, keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or at cockcrow, or at dawn, or else he may find you asleep when he comes suddenly. And what I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. All right, so there's a lot to kind of unpack there. Um, one of the really interesting things I find in this, um, at the beginning of this gospel, I'm just going to kind of go through it um, kind of in order. Um, I might scramble things up a little bit if I remember them afterwards, but um, I think I got everything kind of organized here on my little um, on my little script. Um, it's half written, half not. Anyways, so... I think one of the biggest messages is what does it mean to be gathered up together? And, you know, when I hear this, I always think about, again, this is something that I brought up last time as well. I always think about Jesus comparing himself to being a mother hen, you know, gathering up chicks and protecting them under his wings. And actually in the park close to where I live, um, there are lots and lots and lots of ducks there. Um, they've been there for years, and they have created a huge population now. Um, and the mothers always collect all of their little ducklings together. And they don't just, like, gather them once. Like, they don't just have them when they're the tiniest. Even after they've molted, after they've gotten their new shades of uh, feathers, and they look more like adults, but they're still kind of small, the mother still takes care of them. The mother still guides them and still gathers them around and stuff like that. They all walk in large groups together um, in order for the cars not to run them over. Um, they... They all flock together, and they're often led by the mother duck, in this case, or even a mother goose, because there are some geese as well over there, and it's nice to know that we have a mother goose. Anyways, so, um, again, we have this idea that Jesus is going to be gathering us all up together, all of his elect, as he likes to say, um, or I don't know if it's him or if it's somebody else who wrote that word into him, um, this idea of elect, of elect kind of sounds a little bit, um, I don't know, sounds very exclusionary, but sometimes we get that in these apocalyptic references as well in the gospel. But basically, we have Jesus saying he's going to gather all of, you know, all of his followers, all of his people together. And I think basically it's like, again, we're being um, called to be gathered before Jesus, who will be a caretaker, who will be the care caretaker for us, who will actually provide for us, not necessarily as somebody who will gather all of them just to put them all through the slaughter or something like that. I really think a lot more about the idea that Jesus is calling us to gather and to really receive this nurture, to receive this care. I think it's such an important thing to remember that, you know, Jesus isn't out there to get us like Jesus is there to care for us to find us to you know to really care for us and I think that that's a really important thing to also remind others when we are teaching about Jesus when we are teaching about this way of love don't forget throughout Acts this is called the way of love when we read in the Gospels Jesus talks so much about love and of course, this passage, unfortunately, does not have that word in here. But that's still the core tenet of Jesus' teachings are all about love. And we have to remember that just in these contexts when things sound like they're getting really difficult and really um, you know, hard to understand. And I think Mark makes it even more difficult because he just kind of throws all of these things out there. Um, and we're kind of left with trying to figure kind of the narrative or the cohesion out. So that's one thing. Um, now, 
I find this um, this next part a bit interesting. So Jesus mentions, you know, learn the lesson from the fig tree that whenever it has, um, I'm just paraphrasing now, whenever the branches have the leaves, you'll know that summer is coming. So I find this fig tree really interesting um, because of the fact of how it grows and how it produces fruit. It's a very unique tree. Um, it's one that I've been getting more and more obsessed with in general. Um, I have so many different varieties of fig trees in my collection right now. I like to grow um, bonsai or really tiny trees in pots. And so um, the, some of the really common ones are different species of figs because they grow very quickly. And the ones that are from further east, like from southern China and from India um, and from those regions, basically those trees, um, they grow very quickly and they don't need all that much um, in terms of, of soil and stuff like that. They actually are very... Um, invasive especially when they, they're like here in the united states for example those trees can kind of grow in bricks and they can grow inside of a palm tree even but that's not the fig tree that we're talking about we're talking about the fig tree that produces fruits that are normally used for eating so that being said though almost all of the trees in the fig species have this same habit where basically they produce fruit but they're not technically fruit like in the scientific definition. For example, like an apple or an orange, those fruits come from flowers. You have a flower, it gets pollinated, and then afterwards the inside, um, I don't know exactly what, what the part is called, but that, that part eventually grows out and becomes the fruit, and the fruit has the seeds in it. But of course the part that we care most about usually are the actual, um, you know, the fleshy part, because that's the yummy part with all the juice and the... Um, you know, the edible parts. So anyways, um, figs are different in that um, the fig does not need to be pollinated in order to bear a fruit. Um, actually, um, I believe by definition the the fruit, which is also called siconium, um, but that, that fruit actually is the flower itself and that if it needs like if um if there are the right species of wasps there then they can actually pollinate it and then the fruit um will grow the seeds or something like that but basically um fig trees just produce them without flowers um i like the word in chinese actually cuz they basically say it's the um the tree that produces fruits that don't need flowers like that's what the fig tree is called the the edible fig um so anyway so for me, that, that sort of thing shows kind of what the fig tree can represent. Not only is it a tree that produces fruit, but it's also a tree that has everything it needs to already produce fruit. That there's no, ex there's no need for anything extra. And I think that a lesson that we today can learn from the fig tree is that a lot of times we have things that are already provided for us. We are given all these different resources to draw on. We are given, you know, we, we, we have received this revelation of God in our lives. We have received the revelation of love in our lives. And it's through that that we can produce fruit. And the fruit does not, you know, the um, figs aren't the biggest fruits out there. And again, figs are, um, you know, they grow in different sizes and they grow in different varieties and stuff like that. And I think that's another way that we can think about figs as well, fig trees, is that we can produce these sorts of fruits and they do not have to be the biggest ones. They don't have to be the ones that we find most spectacular. They can still just... Um, they can grow and they can still be beneficial. They provide food and sustenance for people. And they also produce shade with their leaves and stuff like that. So anyways, that's a lot of stuff that comes up whenever I think of Jesus mentioning the fig tree. Now, there are kind of two places, at least in the Gospel of Mark, where he talks about the fig tree. Um, the first time is actually a little bit before this passage, where he talks about um, he kind of walks out and he finds a fig tree. He looks because he's hungry and he finds no fruit on it. And so he curses the tree. And then like a little bit later, the fig tree completely dies. And people think that it's miraculous in the fact that Jesus is able to command, you know, the life of this, um, fig tree. Um, don't want to get too sidetracked by talking about that because that's a whole other thing. But anyway, so in this one, we have, again, Jesus teaching from the example of the fig tree. But this time he's talking more about the actual leaves and how they symbolize what's coming up next. 
So another thing about fig trees, and I think I want to say this is kind of unique for um, for the Middle East, at least from um, in in the Bible, kind of the the places that are often described. There aren't really that many deciduous trees that are out there, um, and deciduous as in trees that lose their leaves during the winter. And one of them is the fig tree, actually. And so basically, it's the fig tree produces leaves kind of in the early spring. And when they produce leaves, that's when you know that the season for fruiting will come fairly soon. And that's the thing, basically. Jesus is saying that the tree itself will produce these leaves, and when you see them, you know that it's time for the fruiting season and that's also when you know that you know the the heat of summer will come and stuff like that so those are basically the things that the fig tree itself in the way that it produces leaves and stuff like that it's very easy to tell what the timing is like for example the fig tree that i have outside my house right now has lost pretty much all of its leaves because the days have gotten shorter and shorter to the point where now it knows it's basically almost time for winter um, so even though the weather isn't that cold, it has lost most of its leaves, and again, it's signaling that it is now time for winter, and at the beginning of next spring, it'll have all the leaves on it again, and I will know that it's time for spring. Alright, so one last thing I wanted to talk about, I got really sidetracked with figs, I can... I just like talking about plants in general, maybe that can be another series. Anyway, so, now here's the really ugly ugly part. So, two weeks ago, this, I don't know what Sunday that is, um, it was two Sundays ago, according to this year, um, we had a similar parable that uses the same language, which is about slaves and a master. And I don't have the best examples or best, you know, anything to kind of address slavery in the Bible. It's, it's ugly, and it really pains me that Jesus used those um, those images and metaphors to kind of, you know, explain different parables and stuff like that. And oftentimes, um, you know, when he brings up these this imagery, he actually kind of refers to, you know, basically his followers as people to em that should emulate the slaves. And he basically talks about what is the good behavior of a slave. And I kind of take the approach that um, many classicists do. Um, I am not a classicist, but I like listening to their podcasts. Um, and, you know, they talk about uh, slavery in ancient Greece and ancient Rome and in Egypt and stuff like that. So, I guess for classicists, it's more like Greek and Rome. But, so they, they talk about the fact that, you know, just by nature, slavery is evil. It's, there's no defense of it. There's no way of defining it as good. Um and that's really the important lens to kind of look at it, basically. We have to remember that this language is in here. And in addition to that, this slavery, this language around slavery is something that we repeat every single time that we use the word Lord. It's a really difficult thing for me, and it's a really annoying thing to deal with, in that in English especially, we have a lot of words in religion that are so antiquated, they don't mean anything to us except for their definitions in terms of religion. And one of those, for me at least, is the word Lord. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm in the United States, I'm not in Great Britain, where we have, where you have, you know, the House of Lords, and that's a whole different thing. But here in the United States, I mean, like, the most common use of the word Lord is for, um, like, landlord, for example, and again, somebody who owns a property and charges people rent for using that property to any, um, any extent. So for me, um, again, the word Lord has almost no context whatsoever, in my daily spoken English, maybe for some other people it does, in the United States at least. But, honestly, a better way to translate this, because this is actually the dichotomy that's presented in the Bible, is master. And so whenever we say, you know, the Lord Jesus, we would actually say the master Jesus, because kyrios in Greek is used in opposition to doulos, 
Dulos is usually translated as slave. Um, some people like to erase it and say the word servant, because but that's not the right way. It's it's slave by every definition, and the word kirios means master, and that's the same thing that we have even in this same passage in the new revised uh, new revised standard version. The word lord, uh, the word master is used where it says kirios. And so if you were to say something like Kiria Leison, you know, Lord have mercy, in reality it should say Master have mercy. Again, it's the the imagery is just so blatant out there, you know, when you look at the language that, that is presented. However, in English again, we're so obsessed with using antiquated language that we've lost sight of what that word means to us nowadays. This is to say though that this slavery image imagery is so strong, so ingrained in Christianity already, that it's very difficult to, first of all, to address it, and second of all, to even find, you know, what exactly should it mean in our lives. So it's 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 a very difficult thing to think about in general. And again, I do not have an answer. I do not have an answer. I've struggled w with this, and I try to talk myself through things, and I don't have a good explanation or a good idea on how to really approach this idea of the master and the slaves, this idea of Jesus being the master and that the followers are being the slaves, especially in parables like this one, where Jesus says, a person went out to travel and then he entrusted his slaves with their work and that they need to make sure that they're on good behavior, in a lot of different words, they have to be on their best behavior by the, because they don't know when the master is going to be coming back. And that's a similar thing, you know, in the parable of the talents, which we read two weeks ago, that said a man went out to travel, literally the exact same words, a man went out to travel and he entrusted his slaves, again, with different amounts of money that they had to deal with. And when the master returned, then the master was giving them judgment based off of what they did. So... That language is there, and I don't know if it's, you know, really, it, it's, it's, it's not fun to deal with, it's not fun to talk about, um, but you have to acknowledge that it's actually there, especially in this gospel reading, in the first one that we have going into Advent. So just pay attention to that and understand that there is this difficult language in this text that we revere, a lot of us do. And so it's just really important to kind of think about that when you're thinking about this parable, when you think about this entire message. Again, we have the beginning, which says that Jesus is going to gather up all the people as a caretaker. Then we have this idea of nature, basically. We know how to read the signs of nature, and so at the same time, we should also read the signs of what is to come. And then afterwards, we have this idea, again, of a slave owner is going to go out and when he comes back, he's not going to announce when he's coming back. And he's actually, and he warns everybody to be on their best behavior, to be ready. Um, so we have three different kind of interpretations of a similar message of, you know, being ready. And also to, I guess, kind of have your eyes towards Jesus or towards God. Um, it's difficult to kind of reconcile all of this I guess in this gospel reading but that's what we have so to kind of sum things up I guess my general takeaways are for all of the readings for this Sunday hope hope is so important and I know that um you know I've been in some uh, workshops a few weeks ago that were saying that um whenever we talk about things we shouldn't talk about the pandemic I think that's a very difficult and a very um, unproductive way of approaching this. Um, we are facing a pandemic that is affecting every single, every single person in the world right now is being affected. And it doesn't matter if people are, are sick or not, but everybody is being affected in, in some way or another. Some people have lost jobs, some people have lost friends, some people have lost family, some people have lost um, even their sense of security, their sense of happiness even. There are people that are descending even lower into depression. There are people that are kind of being plagued by so much anxiety in addition to having this fear of this disease. So again, in this Sunday, we are being kind of commanded or reminded that there is hope, 
but it is so difficult to have hope when we're thinking about the context of this pandemic. And so if you happen to be preparing for a sermon or something like that or to talk or whatever this Sunday, remember, we, we, we want to hear about hope. And we want to hear about this in the context of our world today. You know, Jesus didn't preach in a, you know, a vacuum. Jesus preached in the context that he was in. He preached using the images of the world around him. You know, today we had this, um, you know, I was talking about the, the fig tree, for example. We have a bunch of farmers, a bunch of um, people working the land. We have people that are raising sheep. We have people that are, um, you know, that are actual slaves. We have all of these different um, images that are around. And Jesus uses those to preach about. In the same way, those are the things that we should also be addressing in our world today. We should be addressing racism. We should be addressing this pandemic. We should be addressing all of these issues that are actually affecting every single person that is around us. But again, we are looking for hope that's the kind of message that I take away from this. We are looking for light in the middle of the darkness. We are trying to hope whenever things seem at their worst. And so we have to remember, look towards God. Look towards the shining countenance of God. Look towards this radiant love. Look towards this light of life. All I can say is that I hope that I can find this as well. Um, and I hope that people were able to sort of... Um, think a little bit with me, I guess, um, as I've kind of parsed through some of these readings in different ways. Hopefully I didn't bore you or lose you, um, but at the same time, I just hope that people have a similar sort of takeaway as well. Again, that we are really looking for hope in this period of hope, because that's what Advent is. It's a period of hoping for salvation. So the last thing I wanted to do was to leave you with, I guess, a song of the week. I don't know if I'll be able to do a sacred song of the week every week, but if I do, then great. But at the very least, I wanted to leave you with a song for this uh, for this week. And so this song fulfills a number of different purposes. The song itself is called Cantaremos, Bailaremos, which is a song by La Semilla, which is a Christian... Peruvian music group, um, and they're actually a group that um, our family has some close ties with um, because we have gotten to know each other over the years. Um, I can't really say that I know them all that well because I was really young the last time that I saw them, like I was probably five or six years old, so it's been a very long time. However, um, their music has been something that's really formative for me and for my family. Um, we would listen to it all of the time. And so just every once in a while, I'll listen to this old recording as well. It was this specific recording was from 1994, and I've just grown up listening to it quite a bit. So this song, like I said, is called Cantaremos, Bailaremos. And I think it really captures the sense of Advent. Um, and I personally think that this is actually a little bit more appropriate for Lent. However, um, observing how... The Episcopal Church in the United States celebrates and observes Lent. Um, I guess it's not really celebrating it, but observing it, it becomes a very doomy, very gloomy kind of thing, especially closer to Holy Week uh, for, uh, I guess, because um, we're thinking more about the crucifixion and the passion of Jesus and all the suffering. And on the other hand, this song is very lively, very upbeat. So I guess it's in one sense a little bit more appropriate for Advent because there's a little bit more of a sense of hope like I've been talking about today. And then there's also just a general um, expectation of the good news being so close, so near to us. So I'll go ahead and read my rough translation of this song. And then I'll go ahead and play a recording that I made um, earlier with my cousin um, Tan Montes and we just sang, uh, well I sang and he played with me and um, you know we were just kind of doing the song as part of a little live stream. So this is what it says in English at least. We will sing, we will dance, for he sang about hope and 
for any clarity sake, um, the he in this case is Jesus. So again, we will sing, we will dance, for he sang about hope. There will be celebrations, and everyone will celebrate his arrival. The new day that he is bringing is the full morning. Your smiles, dreams, and hopes will be reborn in your eyes. People are coming from afar, and our song is getting stronger. It's time, and we're here. Our wait is finishing. The earth will shine in the morning with the sun of justice. There will be no more crying, yelling, nor tears, and life will be born. So I hope that you enjoy this song, um, and just hopefully we can kind of think about hope as we approach the season of Advent, which is very soon at hand. Thank you for tuning in today. Thank you so much for joining and listening to me. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Also, feel free to reach out to me via Instagram or Twitter. I'll keep links in the show description. And um, please check that description for um, any other links and notes and kind of stuff that I've talked about. And I hope to see you next time. Thank you very much. Have a nice day.